0: Genesis chapter 49 and chapter 50. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council, let not my honor be united to their assembly, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp, from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion, as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell by the sea, by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel, so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him. He shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel." By the God of your Father, who will help you, and by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, blessings of your Father, have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph, on the crown of of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them, he blessed each one according to his own blessing. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, with Abraham, which Abraham bought with, with the field of Ephraim the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I now have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying, and in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel- which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Mechpelah before Mamre, which Abraham Abraham bought with the field of Ephron bought from the field of Ephron, the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, He and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, Please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father, and Joseph went with wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Macher, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. And they embalmed him. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That is the word of the Lord. So Genesis chapter 49 and 50. We wrap up Genesis. What a glorious book. What a spectacular story God has weaved together for us and this is just the first book of the Bible so here in Genesis chapter 49 this chapter records for us actually a poem this is a poem that Jacob speaks to his sons and this poem reveals what will befall them in the days to come In my uh, new King James says, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. And sometimes we hear that phrase in the last days and we think like the day Jesus comes back to earth to establish the new heavens and the new earth. But that's not what this is referring to. And so here this poem that Jacob speaks to his sons is sometimes referred to as a blessing it's Jacob's blessing and it does say that he so he blessed his sons but it's not really a blessing in the common sense of the word because if you were listening to what Jacob said to his sons there's a lot there that you would not and I would not consider a blessing if my father spoke that over me And so this is, you know, where we kind of, sometimes people have a hard time with the scripture because the Bible says things and people in the Bible do things that we would have a hard time doing. But you have to remember that Jacob, and this is why last week I pointed this out to you that it doesn't just say Jacob gathered himself. It says when Jacob heard Joseph was coming with his sons, then it switched and it says Israel Gathered himself. And Israel spoke a blessing over Joseph, but he spoke it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is not a blessing in the common sense of the word, this is a foretelling. Jacob is announcing the future of the tribes of Israel represented in his sons. Verse 1 And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. What shall befall you? The reference is to the distant future. Jacob is speaking to the individual tribes personified in his sons. And this Hebrew phrase, in the last days or in the days to come, simply means in the future. It gives no precise definition as to what the timetable is. In the prophetic or in the Torah, uh, in the first five books of the Bible, when this term is used, when you see this in the writings, this is in a historical context. But when we get to the prophetic literature, for instance, when Isaiah, the prophet, talks about the last days, that switches and those prophetic voices begin to talk about what will happen when the culmination, specifically with the coming of the Messiah. So this is when Peter, for instance, in the book of Acts, Peter says, this is what was written by the prophet Joel. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, where Peter quotes that, begins with, in the last days. Peter says, this is the fulfillment. So think of this, 2,000 years ago, Peter said, this is the fulfillment of what Joel wrote centuries before, in the last days. Peter says, we're in the last days. And if Peter, on the day of Pentecost, was in the last days, where does that put us? We're still in the last days. So we need to be careful how we understand. So when Jacob says, come and I will tell you what shall befall you in the days to come, he's saying, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. He doesn't put a time, a date, a timetable. He's telling his sons what will befall their tribes in the future. So this poem of Jacob's is known to be one of the most difficult passages of the Scripture to interpret because there's a lot here that, quite frankly, uh, there's a lot of implication, innuendo. Uh, It's not just how do we interpret. Some of it's very clearly seen. We're going to talk about one section in particular So it's not only the meaning of all that's being foretold, but how the poem is constructed also lends to its difficulty and its mystery. In other words, it holds specific meaning and it was constructed in a specific way for a specific purpose. So you might think that as Jacob is, it's kind of, you don't think of it as a poem, but Jacob is, by inspiration, he's, He's quoting poetry to his sons. This is like a song. It's it's a we're reading it in English, but if you read it in Hebrew you would you would see this is this is constructed. It's poetry. And so Jacob is telling his sons what's going to happen to them, to their tribes in the days to come. And you might think that as Jacob goes through and he speaks to each one of his sons, that he would do so according to their birth order. But one of the mysteries of this poem that Jacob is speaking, he doesn't list his sons in order of their birth. He lists them out of order. True Reuben is his firstborn. Some of them are in order, but they're not all in order. So Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. Or in other words, you're the beginning of my, my vitality, my, my virility as a man. You were my firstborn. What God promised in making Israel a great nation, you were the first answer to that promise that would come through me, your father Jacob. But then you see it kind of goes downhill from there for Reuben. Reuben slept with Jacob's, uh, the mother of some of Jacob's sons, Bilhah, which was Rachel's servant. Reuben and Bilhah had an illicit affair on Jacob's own bed. And Reuben is cut out of... um, You'll see later on you, you throughout the scripture you see later on the scripture Reuben is taken out and and Ephraim and Manasseh are inserted in here because of what Reuben did and history will tell us, so we have the the luxury of hindsight in history we can go back in history and we can see that indeed what Jacob says in these thumbnail sketches of their future indeed did come to pass. Long after Moses who wrote this down, long after the children of Israel came out of Egypt and established themselves in the promised land and during the times of the judges and the kings uh, and into their captivity, we see what happened to these tribes. And Jacob is right on. And you know why he is? Some people would say, well, this was written long after and it was constructed. No, it's because it is the holy inspired word of God. And Jacob, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells the tribes of Israel what shall befall them in the future. And he does it in obedience to the spirit of God. And so, the sons are not listed in order. There are things here that don't make sense at first notice. But yet, when we go back and we look with the benefit of hindsight, it's revealed that the prophetic and the historical accuracy of Jacob's words are uncanny. So let's look at one section of this. I want to look at verses 8 through 12. This is Jacob's foretelling of what will happen with the tribe of Judah. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp, a young lion. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion lion now from a young lion to a full-grown lion who shall rouse him the scepter a scepter is a symbol of rule and authority kings hold scepters it speaks of kingship of a rule the scepter shall not depart from judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until shiloh comes shiloh is a term that speaks of the Messiah. It's a messianic term. It's, this is speaking of the coming of the Messiah. To him, to who? To Shiloh, to the Messiah shall be the obedience of the people. Where is Shiloh going to come from? He's going to come from Judah. Out of Judah is going to come this one, to who, the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. This is all symbolic language. It's all language that's describing to us the Messiah. We can see just in this, think of, Jesus, how did Jesus ride into Jerusalem? He rode in on a donkey's colt. He sent his disciples to go get a donkey. Not just any donkey, but a donkey that had never been ridden before. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Not in Clorox. He didn't make them white. He made them red like blood. Why? Because by the blood we are washed white as snow. We are purified. So you see this symbolic language here where Jacob in these words for the tribe of Judah, we see Jacob foretelling the coming of the Messiah, who is the lion. Of the tribe of Judah. John in Revelation 5 5, in his vision, he sees the one. It, it said in Revelation, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And John said, No one stepped forward. There was no one worthy. And I began to weep. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose. It's seven seals. After Jacob gathers his sons and declares the things concerning the tribes, he gathers himself back into bed and he dies. And the picture reveals that Jacob purposefully did what he did. He got out of his bed. He gathered himself up. He prophetically proclaimed these things over the tribes of Israel. Then he purposefully gathered himself, put his feet back in his bed. And the Bible says he breathed his last and was gathered to his fathers. And Jacob had charged his sons that he was to be buried with his fathers in the land of Canaan and when jacob had finished commanding his sons verse 33 he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and gathered was gathered to his people so this poem full of all kinds of things mostly telling us what's going to befall these tribes and so why is it that that god wrote this section of scripture the way he did well we really don't know why did he list the sons out of order but yet there's an order to them that makes perfect sense for instance when you get to verse 13 and verse 14 verse 13 says zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea and issachar is a strong donkey issachar was born before zebulun But in the scripture, Zebulun is always listed before Issachar here because of this prophetic utterance of Jacob. And we know historically that that Zebulun became a more powerful, preeminent tribe than Issachar did. And Issachar kind of, now did that happen because Jacob said this? Or did Jacob say this because Jacob knew that was going to happen? Yes, both are right. Jacob said this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, maybe not even understanding why he was saying what he was saying. Yet we can go back and we can see the prophetic accuracy, the historical accuracy of the things that Jacob says here. What does that tell us about the word of God? It reveals to us the purposeful depth and the hidden riches in God's word. So the proverb says that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the honor of kings to search out a matter. And if you're wondering whether you're a king or not, the Bible says that God has made us in Christ Jesus kings and priests. We have been made in Christ kings and priests unto our God. That's the book of Revelation. That's the scripture. So it's your honor to search out the things that God has put in his word. And this is just one example of how God has filled his word with a depth and a mystery of hidden riches for us to Go to, and you might say, Well, what do these tribes have to do with me? I'm not Jewish, I don't belong to them. And that's why I wanted to point out to you Jacob's specific admonition to his son Judah because it actually does affect you and it actually is important for you because through Judah came the Messiah. Jesus Christ that is the scepter that is the lawgiver that is Shiloh who is to come that is the one who has washed his garments in the blood of grapes that is the one who shed his own blood for us so that we though our sins were as scarlet shall become as white as snow in the words of the prophet Isaiah Now look at another here, look in verse 22, he says, Joseph, he begins to talk about Joseph. And this is mysterious as why Jacob says, when we get down to verse 20, 24, in the middle part it says, by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, and then in parentheses, as an aside, it says, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. That is an allusion to Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus didn't come through the tribe of Joseph. Jesus came through the tribe of Judah. It seems that that should be placed under Judah's portion of this poem, not Joseph's portion of this poem. But look closely at what the scripture says. And by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. He's talking about Joseph. But remember why Joseph was sent to Egypt to begin with. Joseph didn't go to Egypt voluntarily. Joseph didn't say, here, I'll go to Egypt and live as a slave and nearly die and leave my family and my loved ones and all that's familiar to me. Joseph didn't volunteer for that. He didn't sign up for that. He was forced into that. He was carried away unwillingly as a slave, with no idea what was getting ready to happen. But because, remember, because Joseph was carried away as a slave, and I just read to you what we've been reading, I've read this every time we've studied Genesis, once we've gotten to Joseph. Verse 20, Joseph's words to his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And that saving many people alive wasn't just Joseph saving a bunch of Egyptians and his household from the land of Canaan. Because because of what Joseph did, because God sent Joseph to Egypt, God Through Joseph, by raising up Joseph in Egypt, God preserved the shepherd. He preserved the stone that would come, not from the tribe of Joseph, but from the tribe of Judah. In other words, Judah would have died had it not been for Joseph. And if Judah would have died and Jesus wouldn't have come through Judah, we would not have a Savior to call upon today. We wouldn't be here preaching this message. You wouldn't be here listening to me. You wouldn't have a Bible that you would be reading because it all would have just ended right there. But you know why it didn't? Because it wasn't up to you and I. It wasn't up to a man This was not man's plan. This was not your plan. This was not my plan. This is God's plan and the sovereign God of creation. This is why you need to be be in such awe of who God is. This is why you need to have such awe at your salvation, the fact that God has saved you, the fact that God brought you into life, the fact that God made you part of this covenant, the fact that God brought you into his, the very life of his son, gave you that life, raised you up with him, seated you with him in heavenly places. When you were dead in sin, he made you alive in Christ. He raised you up in Christ. God, God did that. And his plan to do that wasn't after you got here and he checked you out to see whether you were going to be worthy of it or not. God's plan to do that was before there was a sun, a moon, a stars, or a universe, or a black hole, or galaxies, or anything that we know of in the created realm. Before there was a created realm, this was the plan and the purpose of God. Joseph went to Egypt because in the eternal counsel of God it was his plan and purpose to preserve judah through joseph it was his plan and purpose to bring jesus christ through the lineage through the tribe of judah And to use Joseph to preserve the shepherd and the stone to make sure that Judah made it through the famine so that you and I could be here today to call upon the name of Jesus Christ for salvation. That wasn't your plan, folks. That was not my plan. That was no plan of man. That was the eternal plan of God. And this is exactly what Joseph is telling his brothers So Jacob dies, Joseph falls on the face of his father and kisses him, makes arrangements for his burial. And look here, look here in verse 15 of of Genesis chapter 50. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. Do you know up until this point, it's not recorded in the scripture that Joseph's brothers have said to him, gee, Joseph, we're really sorry. But it's also... Not recorded, and we have no indication that this is. As a matter of fact, we have every indication that it's exact opposite. That Joseph is not waiting around to get an apology from his brothers. He's not waiting for that. Joseph had let that go long before he ever encountered his, his brothers after he was sold into slavery. But his brothers, they're the ones that can't get past their own sin. Joseph wasn't hung up on, the, on his brother's sin, which they sinned against him and against God. Joseph wasn't hung up on that. It was the brothers that were hung up on sin. They couldn't get their eyes off of their own sin because they had never come to a place at least it's not recorded until we get here to the last chapter of Genesis after their father dies that they actually ask for and beg for forgiveness and confess their sin. So all of this time until Jacob dies, the brothers in the back of their mind, think about this, they're thinking, you know what? The only reason Joseph hadn't done something to us is because of our father. And then when Jacob is gone, they're thinking, oh, dad is gone. Now there will be nothing to restrain Joseph. He just, he, he was kind to us. He took care of us. He pretended to love us for the sake of our father. But now that he's gone, perhaps, this is exactly what they say, perhaps he will repay us for the evil that we did against him. So they sent a messenger to Joseph, and through a messenger, they didn't even go personally because they didn't know for sure. They had that much fear and that much doubt that if they came before Joseph, now that Jacob was dead, that Joseph would just have them taken away and he would repay them for the evil that they did to him. You know, very often, the things we think other people are gonna do, the way we look at and think of other people is a reflection of what's in our own heart. You know why those brothers thought that? Because that's exactly who they were. And how do we know that's who they were? Because of what they did to Joseph to begin with. There was still something not right in their heart Toward their brother. And so they thought, there's still something not right in my brother's heart toward me. And they had a real fear of revenge, that Joseph is now going to take revenge. And they send the messenger. And I want you to see the reaction of Joseph. So they send the messenger, verse 16, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and they and their sin, for they did evil to you. Do you know that we have absolutely no record that tells us that Jacob ever said that? We have no record of, of what Jacob knew and what the brothers told you. We're, we know for a fact that until they all met Joseph in Egypt, Jacob thought Joseph was dead. So for 22 years, we know for a fact, they lied to their father for 22 years and covered up their sin. Now the question is, is this a lie to Joseph? Did they make this up? Did Jacob really say? Or are they grasping at straws, hoping, because what do they have to lose? Because in their mind, they're already dead. He's going to repay us for the evil we did. But if we can convince him that my father said, don't repay them for the evil, forgive them, silly boys, then maybe he won't. We don't know whether Jacob really said this or not. The, con- the conventional wisdom is this is something the brothers made up in desperation. And I believe Joseph's reaction bears that out. Thus you will say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. There's their confession. They have finally confessed their sin against Joseph. They did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. They didn't say, please forgive the trespass of your brothers. They said, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. Those brothers didn't, they didn't communicate and consider themselves to be brothers with Joseph. This had nothing to do with the way Joseph treated them. It had everything to do with the way they treated Joseph. And in their mind, they had severed the family relationship. What they had in common was a father and a God. And they pleaded to Joseph, for the sake of our father and for the sake of our God, don't kill us, have mercy on us. Because in their mind, they didn't see themselves as having the right to call themselves Joseph's brothers after what they did to him because they didn't love Joseph as a brother. That's obvious when they sought to kill him and then eventually sold him into slavery. And look what it says. And Joseph, the last part of verse 17, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So they send a messenger, evidently the messenger, they they find out the coast is clear, they come to Joseph, and when they come to Joseph, they say to Joseph, please forgive us for the sin, the trespass that we have committed against you. Forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And it says Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And why do you think Joseph wept? I believe Joseph wept because it grieved the heart of Joseph. That his brothers, after all of these years in Egypt, after embracing them in the beginning when he could have easily gotten rid of them if he wanted to. And no one would have ever known the difference. After all that they had been through, after all that he did to save their lives, to bring them there, to make a place for them, what Joseph realized in this encounter with his brothers is that my brothers are still questioning my love for them. My brothers are still questioning whether I love them, whether I have forgiven them. They're questioning my heart to them. And it caused Joseph to weep. Then when his brothers saw, says his brothers in verse 18, then his brothers also went and fell down before the face of, before his face and they said behold we are your servants there's the dream fulfilled again of the young Joseph but Joseph is not he cares nothing about his dreams coming true what he cares about is the relationship with his brothers Yes, because of his God and yes, because of his father. But not just that. Joseph had a true and a real love within himself for his brothers. And Joseph says to them, verse 19, do not be afraid for am I in the place of God? And he reminds them, but as for you, He says, guys, the only one with evil intent here has been you. I've never had evil intent against you. I didn't have evil intent against you when you threw me in the well and sold me into slavery. I didn't have evil intent against you when I encountered you years later when you came the first time to get food in the midst of the famine. I don't have evil intent against you right now. He says, you, as for you, he's reminding them, but as for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. God took the evil intent within the heart of Joseph's brothers and he used their evil intent to bring about a great salvation. Sound familiar to you? The men who crucified Jesus were truly evil. They had evil in their heart. Their heart was to murder the Son of God and God took the real, genuine evil intent within the heart of those men who murdered the Son of God and he used their evil intent to bring about the greatest salvation, period. This is what we see in a type in a shadow in a microcosm with Joseph and his brothers and the salvation he brings to Egypt in the land of Canaan and the world at that time, but yet in the in the midst of all of this, here is this unfounded fear, this fear of revenge, but Joseph reminds them you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And he says, Now, brethren, do not be afraid. Joseph's brother's fear of revenge after Jacob's death was unfounded. What they did not know is that Joseph had let go of all of that bitterness, all of that unforgiveness, if there was any there, and I'm sure there was. But here's what, God did. This is what the Spirit of God does in our lives. He takes us, He puts us in circumstances we would not put ourselves, He takes us to places we would not go ourselves, He causes us to encounter and deal with things we would never do and deal with ourselves and he does that and the whole time he's working out the bitterness, the unforgiveness. He's working out the fear. He's working all of those things out of our life. He worked that out of Joseph's life. He brought Joseph to a place and put Joseph in a place of authority when God knew that Joseph would not do exactly what the brothers were fearful he was going to do. If Joseph was prone to extract vengeance and repay his brothers for the evil that they had done, I submit to you that God would never have put him in the position that Joseph was put in. Because it was not the intent of God to destroy those brothers as wicked and as deserving of destruction as they might have been. It was God's intent to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob through those brothers and Joseph became the instrument of salvation that God used to make sure that promise was fulfilled. So that Judah would one day produce Jesus Christ through an unknown, obscure little virgin girl in the smallest most insignificant of cities. Here is the king of the world, the king of all creation, born in the most insignificant way, in the most insignificant place, by the most insignificant parents. Yet his father was God, and he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but nobody knew it. And Joseph's brothers feared Joseph because they did not know the love of Joseph. They questioned Joseph. They lived in uncertainty because they didn't know the love that Joseph had for them. If that's true for Joseph's brothers and Joseph, how much more true is that for us? When we live our lives and we profess to know that God loves us yet we live in fear because we we can't trust that God is actually sovereignly leading and guiding our lives cuz we're more hung up on the injustice or the pain or the suffering or the crime or the sin that was committed against us instead of looking to the God who rules and reigns over all of that and instead of saying with Joseph, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, we are more like Joseph's brothers who are wondering when the next shoe is gonna fall and more evil and more pain and more suffering is gonna come to me. God wants us to come to a place of trusting him and knowing his love. Because he gives to us the same thing that Jacob, that Joseph gave to his brothers. It's a promise of peace and provision. So in the midst of this confession of their sin, this plea for forgiveness, Joseph affirms his promise to his brothers. And Joseph not only promises that he will not seek revenge, he promises to sustain them and their families, In Joseph, we see a beautiful picture of the grace of God extended us in Jesus Christ. Like Joseph to his brothers, Christ has promised to us peace and provision through the blessings that he has secured for us in him. And when his brothers came to realize the love Joseph had for them, they cast away their fear. Joseph was not just restrained out of respect for their father, but he had a genuine love for them that brought to them, the promise of peace and provision. Jesus doesn't just love you because the Father commands Him to love you. Jesus loves you because He is love and He has a love for you out of Himself. And He loves you, yes, for the sake of His Father. He loves you, yes, for all of those things, but He loves you out of a love. That he has for you in himself. And he demonstrated that love by dying on a cross. By humbling himself, stooping and coming to this earth. Not only to look at, but to become part of this creation. He put on human flesh. He became obedient even to the point of death. Even death on a cross, the Bible says. And he did that. Yes, out of obedience. Yes, out of respect for his father. But mostly he did it out of love. And from that demonstration of God's love for us in Christ, we have every reason to trust him. Even in the midst of uncertainty, we have every reason to trust him. Joseph, through many trials, came to realize and trust the providence of God. He reassured his brothers with the promise of peace and the promise of provision. He affirmed God's providence and God's deliverance. And he died in faith. He tells them, he said, God will visit you. God will come and God will visit you. And he'll take you back to the land of promise. Now what? What is glaringly obvious there to me is that Joseph gave them the promise that God would come and visit them and deliver them, but Joseph did not tell them when or how that was going to happen. What do you think they would have thought if Joseph would have said, well, you're going to be here over 300 more years and you're going to become slaves. It's going to be really miserable for you guys. But don't worry, God's going to come visit you one day. That's not what happened. He, He just gave him the promise. And it's a true word. It was a true promise. And yes, there were 300 more years of misery in Egypt. Misery you and I can't even imagine. But God kept his promise. We want to get hung up on the misery... God says, stop looking at the misery and start looking at the promise. I'm Lord of the promise and I'm Lord of the misery. But here's the good news, church. He's Lord of the joy too. He came that we might have joy, the Bible says. Jesus said, I tell you these things that your joy may be full. That my joy in you may be full and your joy shall remain. He tells that to his disciples before he's carried away and crucified before their very eyes. And somehow they had to get through the misery and the torment and the utter hopelessness of seeing Jesus beat into hamburger meat on a cross and crucified and dead before their very eyes. And they're thinking, how, how are all these promises that he gave us? How is all the, where is the joy? Jesus, you said you gave us joy and the joy is to be full and is to remain. But this isn't very joyful. But see, we look back on the cross now and we, we see the joy. We know the joy. And it's hard for us. It was hard for them to see and to know the joy. It's hard for us to see and to know the horror. They knew the horror of it. We can't really comprehend the horror of it, but we know the joy of it. That's that's good news. That's gospel. That's grace. But the horror was real. The hopelessness in those disciples was real. The hopelessness in the slaves, in the slavery that, Israel became in Egypt it was real but God never forgot his promise God never delayed his promise in the fullness of time God sent forth his son in other words what that means is at the exact right time not too early not too late when is God going to visit you He's going to visit you at the appointed time. It's not going to be too early, and it's not going to be too late. How do you know, Pastor Jeff? Because God promises. He gives us that promise, and his promise is yes and amen. He just doesn't tell you the when and the how. So don't get hung up on the when and the how. Just look to the promise. This is what Joseph's life provides for us through his example, through his life of faith. So think about this. The road is not easy. It's filled with unexpected obstacles. It has twists and turns. It plunges into darkness and takes us where we did not expect to go. It leads us on through uncertainty and seems to bring us to lost and unknown places It often leaves us filled with questions only to rise up into light, giving us a glimpse of what lies ahead. And in the midst of our uncertainty, one thing is to remain certain. Even in the midst of our questions, the one thing that is to remain certain is our faith. This is what we see in Joseph. The one thing that remained in Joseph was his faith. Did he have uncertainty, questions, questions? Yes, but his faith remained. How do we know? Because we see how he reacted. We see how he handled the adversity that was brought to him. It's not that Joseph never failed in adversity. I'm sure he did. But you're not judged based on your failures. You're not judged based on the snapshot judgments of your life. That's not what defines your life. Your life is not defined by a snapshot. Your life is defined over the course of time. It encompasses the entire road, the entire path. We may not know what the road holds or where the road turns, but we know the one who holds the road. And the same one is holding us and guiding our path. We don't know every place the road will lead us, but we know where the road ultimately ends. And where is that church? It ultimately ends in his glory. Wherever your road takes you, whatever twist, whatever turns, whatever darkness, whatever trials, whatever tribulations, whatever joys, whatever beauties you behold, you need to know that ultimately the road ends in his glory. That's where we are being taken to, his glory. That's what we are being conformed to, the glory of the Son of God. And we don't travel the road alone. God is with us and we are with one another. We're called a people, a flock, a nation. Most importantly, we're called a body, signifying that we are not created or called to walk the road or function alone, but together together. Isolation and independence are dangers filled with peril that lead to our own doom and destruction. Solomon writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verse 7, Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors. Nor is his eye satisfied with riches, but he never... Asks For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. For he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another two can withstand him and a three-fold cord is not quickly broken our life of faith our road was never meant to be walked alone but together by two or three or four or more we are called together his people his holy nation we are called his body the church we are bound together under one head Who is Christ? And what ultimately binds us together is love. And the Bible says God is love. That's what Joseph's brothers missed. They thought it was just the rule of a patriarch. They thought it was the authority of their father making Joseph restrain himself because they didn't know love. They didn't know love. It's obvious because of what they did to Joseph. But God brought them to a place and he revealed to them in person what true love is just like God has done to us in Jesus Christ. When all else may seem uncertain, let this one thing be certain. Let your faith and let love be certain. Trust him in all things. Love him, love the brethren in all things, and walk by faith and not by sight. Whatever is meant for evil, God meant it for good. Whatever is meant for evil, God meant it for good. Trust that. This is our faith in our sovereign Lord who rules and reigns over all. So my challenge to you is simple. It is to trust him no matter what. Do not trust what you can or cannot see, but trust the one who is invisible yet clearly seen as he works all things together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. I believe that defines all of you because you're here today, because you're not here today by accident. You're not hearing these words by accident. God ordained it. Take heed to his word. Let's all stand and let's pray. My simple challenge has a simple prayer. Father, grant us faith. Grant us repentance for our unbelief. Grant us grace to walk trusting you in all that is seen and all that is unseen. Grant us grace to love with the love that never fails do this, we pray, Father, for your glory. Amen.